0: the reason I mention that is I have another host, one of the podcasters from the Christians for Liberty Network, Jacob Winograd. Hey, Jacob. Hey, Doug. How you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. I'm hoping that everybody who listens to my podcast goes over and listens to your podcast sometime soon. Can you tell us about your podcast?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's the Biblical Anarchy Podcast. And we, as the name sort of suggests, try to make the case for anarchism from the Bible. And so... We do a lot of different content. I'll do interviews with different people, exploring different topics. We'll explore different Bible passages. Some of my favorite episodes lately have been going to the internet and finding people who are trying to show how Christians can't be anarchists or why anarchism doesn't work and debunking them, kind of going through them in a Socratic method and just breaking down those arguments and showing where they don't hold. And yeah, so that's what the podcast is sort of about. And I've had a lot of fun launching that with the Christians for Liberty Network. And just excited to be here talking with you about these things tonight.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's really important that we get to know who you are a little bit. And also, I mean, you've been on my show before. So we I think we've talked twice. One is, you know, your involvement in the Mises Caucus, and then I forget what the other one was. but Romans 13. You know, Romans 13, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's right, it was. Man, I do so many interviews. It's like... I don't remember what I interviewed people well, about right. from one,
1: one to the next. That's the same when I have Carrie on. I'm just like, wait, I've had you on three or four times. And we've <laughs> and of course, like each time carries on, you talk abortion. So it's just like, but you, you talk about abortion plus something else. So it's just
0: like, a yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think it's really important for people to get to know where you come from. Not just so that like, oh, hey, I like this guy. I want to go listen to his podcast. I hope that's true. At the same time, I know that you have a particular story about how you came from essentially the left and became a libertarian. You're probably the only libertarian from the le- that came from the left via Rothbardianism. That's a pretty rare story. In fact, it's actually one of the sort of critiques that people who are sort of like broadly libertarian, but aren't like really big on the Mises Caucus or the Mises Institute or, you know, that side of the libertarian world are kind of like, well, you're never going to attract people who are on the left. Well, somehow that did for you. And I, I want to kind of get to the bottom of that a little bit. But before we jump into your, your, say your transition, how did you get to become a lefty? Wow.
1: So I grew up in probably, I mean, I wouldn't say it's completely conventional, but mostly conventional for the sake of this conversation. Right-wing Republican household, voted Republican down ticket. My Dad was a pastor slash missionary, like he was a pastor whose ministry was planting churches, basically, and he did that both here mm. domestically and he also did that in Africa, mainly concentrating in Ghana and he planted churches there as well as women's shelters, orphanages, and things like that and so I kind of grew up in the faith, but my dad's experience sort of jaded me to both like right wing conservatism and Mm -hmm. sort of the evangelical Christian wing of Christendom here in America, at least. And I saw so much corruption and hypocrisy. And I also just kind of, you know, I think grew up in sort of like a time where the cultural zeitgeist was just like, we've moved beyond these sort of like old conservative superstitions or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ancient bigotries and things like that. And, You know, I still had my faith, but I just kind of felt like people and, you know, to some extent I was right. I just had this intuition that the people around me in the church that I had grown up around were doing Christianity wrong. We're doing church wrong. Unfortunately, although I think my intuition was right, I was attracted to the left, which I think was because they were the ones who were kind of just the more natural alternative progressivism and sort of what we now call wokeism and stuff. That was sort of the culture and sort of what my peers and stuff were doing. So I kind of went that route, both politically and with my religious beliefs as well. I, I went rather progressive in my Christianity. So I think it was, hmm. I wouldn't just simplify to like rebellion against my upbringing. I think it was partly that, but also partly like just specific experiences. Like I remember watching my dad goes through the process of planning churches and then trying to establish them and seeing just how much of the modern church was just like consumerism. And I kind of connected that to capitalism and connected that to Mm. like just also a critique of a lot of what the things that right-wing conservative Christians focused on. It was like, you guys are focusing on gay marriage. You guys are focusing on trying to control people's lives and focusing on enforcing all of these dogmas and things that don't really matter and what really matters is that we should be taking care of people and trying to care so like things that I say on my podcast now right it's like it's so my my heart hasn't changed it's just I noticed a problem and I thought the solution was progressivism and wokeism because there's something intuitive about that I think where it seems intuitive to be like you know Jesus said take care of the least of these and progressives are the ones who are out there, and they're the compassionate ones who are... In the public
0: square, they're the ones who are voicing the same exact thing. Exactly. Yeah. Would you look back on it now as like, well, you were just simply, you hadn't shed statism, and therefore you just chose the opposite, the mirror opposite of what you, you know, like, hey, we're going to choose a different way of doing church, doing Christianity, but you didn't realize that the statism part was the problem?
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. It would be interesting to like look at an alternate timeline where I encountered Ron Paul and libertarianism before I encountered progressivism. Mm-hmm. By the time I had encountered Ron Paul, I remember having to do some research on him in 2008 and then later on when I was part of my speech and debate high school team. But at that point, the only thing that I liked Ron Paul about was that he seemed to be anti-war, which I was anti-war. I was very... That's another thing, you know, I was very jaded by the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. I remember my history teacher, who was a big lefty, kind of like an old school lefty. And he, to his credit, very effectively sort of red pilled us in our AP history class my junior year on like the reasons behind the 9-11 attacks and the tensions that the people in the Middle East have towards America, which that just kind of like mm-hmm. really came alongside all of the angst towards my sort of conservative upbringing and just reaffirmed all that. to be like, oh, wow, I was told these people hated us because of our freedoms. But no, they hate us because of the violence that we've done towards them. And that fits into that conservatives are bigots and that it's all just connected to systemic oppression. And part of that systemic oppression is capitalism and corruption and politics and whatnot. So, I wanted to see an end to, you know, I, I kind of viewed Christianity and viewed Jesus as like anti-hierarchy. And we needed to end these competitive systems that resulted in people dominating one another and controlling people and wealth radically distributing at the top more and more while people in the middle and the bottom kept getting less and less, you know, all these things kind of connected together and really formed by political and religious perspectives.
0: Is there anything in there that you still retain? Like, other than the spirit of, like, caring for the poor, you just know that it's not done through the state. But, like, is there any, I'll give one example that could be the case, which is we should always be against corruption in institutions, first and foremost, the state, because it is the monopoly on violence. But is there anything in you that's like, well, there are big tech companies that are way too powerful. Now, that doesn't mean we have the state break them up but that there are actual threats to liberty and to human flourishing that that are not simply the state, but that, you know, the left does have a point, I guess you might say. Yeah. Outside of the one I just mentioned, is there anything else?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think definitely I've had an easier time than maybe some more right-wing libertarians coming to the conclusion of, like, condemning corporations, especially in sort of the post- 2020 world that we live in and seeing how a lot of the state acting through these corporations to enact its will. Cause you see some libertarians that go like, well, it's just a private company. It's like, well, you know, it's, (laughs) it's a bit more nuanced than that. But I think beyond that, something I've talked about before, but I don't think on this podcast or if I did, I just remember, but something I still talk about, which I think I have a more nuanced perspective on, but I think is still true is that inequality is still a problem especially radical inequality, it's destabilizing to a society. And the more Mm -hmm. that you get a society where you have wealth massively distributed at the top and not at the bottom, even if you'll get like arguments from people like Ben Shapiro, that would be like, oh, but the standard of living is higher and what you can do with that money goes further. And it's like, yeah, but it still gets to a point where you look at people living in just absolute luxury while you're struggling to get by and make ends meet. That's just psychologically something that is destabilizing. Now, obviously, the libertarian and having a understanding of like Austrian economics and free markets and how those distribute wealth, we're never going to have true equality. And I think the way that I connect that now is to understand that I think if we had a true free market, things would not be equal, but you wouldn't have this just insane lopsided distribution of wealth. You still have hierarchy. You still have people who would accumulate more wealth than others, but it's really through like things like the federal reserve and through insider trading and all these ways of wealth accumulation and preservation that the top, you know, to use Bernie Sanders term, the 1% (laughs) that they get Mm -hmm. to utilize to do that. Like all that happens because of government and in a free market where they actually have to compete a lot of these people would not be able to compete nearly as well without having all of those state
0: created advantages. Yeah. During that time that you were on the left, you seem to also have been more left theologically. Give us some idea of like where you were then. I mean, you've hinted at it in conversations with me and on our podcast host group about like where you were in like a form of deconstruction mode or whatever. So describe that a little bit. I'm kind of curious because I haven't really heard much from you on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was basically a red-letter Christian without really maybe using that title.
0: What is a red-letter Christian for people who might not know?
1: Oh, well, just basically like nothing in the Bible can be proven to be really exactly God's word other than that which is attributed to coming straight out of the mouth of Jesus. But even then, I viewed the Bible as, you know, essentially this muddled collection of writings from people who probably were trying to write something that. They felt was inspired and something that the Holy Spirit was trying to communicate to them, but that I viewed it from my cultural perspective and just like I was like, oh wow, I mean the Old Testament is just filled with sexism and war and violence and slavery and all this stuff. And so you know I, I didn't have any sort of sophisticated way of dealing with that. So I was just like, this is all no. just man-made. And then the New Testament, I had major issues with Paul again, because I viewed him as sexist and I viewed it's funny now being Reformed and more Calvinist in my theology, but back then I was very anti-Calvinist. So because I encountered Calvinists, who would quote a lot of Paul at you. I uh, just had an aversion to it. And <laughs> I yeah, it's That's it, funny. It's really funny looking back at it now. And I, I think what guided so my... You're,
0: are you a black letter Christian now? Is that what this is? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Actually, what's funny about that little tangent, there's some version of the Bible that someone either made or someone's like, had the idea to make where they go back and all the words of God in the old Testament were made to be red letter. I was like, I don't.
0: Oh, wow. I don't know how I feel about that, but by the way, another tangent, have you heard of the green letter Bible? No, I haven't. Yeah. So it was back in, I don't know, the teens of this century. Who was it? I guess it was Walter Brueggemann maybe, or I don't know. Somebody on the left went through and any, Verse in the Bible that had to do with creation care or stewardship of creation or just like the grandeur of God as seen in creation, it was green. And you know what really annoyed me about that Bible? Okay, this is so petty. I am all right. This is about you, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna detour about me for just a moment. I am a like when I look at a book, especially a Bible, I really care about the font and the spacing and the like, like how it presents. And this was beautiful. This Bible was like really good, but it was green and black, green and black, and it was all mixed up. And I was like, the typefacing, why can't I find a new revised standard version in that? And that's not this green Bible. It was like, everything was physically about it was great, except this sort of leftist, everything is green uh, <laughs> about the Bible. I was trying to Obviously, it was kind of an environmentalist directive thing. And maybe, the, maybe it was, I mean, I didn't actually pick it up. I just remember seeing it and thumbing through it and, and being like, man, this is so beautiful, except for that. I probably would have loved that Bible if I
1: found it in my progressive times because the other thing that I haven't brought up yet, which I know I've talked to you about, but I was also a vegan for mm, much yeah. of this time. I was, I was a vegan from about 2014 on, and I definitely went back. to so, and this is still up. I don't really have a desire to go and ask the organization to take it down because I, th- <laughs> I think it's called a reference and look back and just, you know, you don't want to memory hole it. It's good. Humble medicine, you know what I mean? To to just go back and see things you wrote in your youth. But if you Google my name and veganism, you'll find an article I wrote, which gives you a good idea. Actually, it's insanely long. And actually, like, I think the first, like, I don't know, two pages or so of that article are actually me just setting the stage with like doing like biblical deconstructionism to like set Mm. the stage to then, you know, so because we can deconstruct the Mm. Bible in the same way that the left will say that the Constitution is a living, breathing document, and so we can reinterpret it to say anything we want. (laughs) That's what the Bible is. You know, it's a living, breathing document, and we have to re-filter the Word of God through our cultural lens because it was written by these barbarians who were bigots and sexists and all theists, And (laughs) so we have to modernize them.
0: Nice. You know what? We're going to do one better. We're going to put this in the show notes page (laughs) so that (laughs) people don't even have to Google it.
1: Uh, yeah, it's an interesting read and it's, I also cared as a lefty about the environment very heavily. I kind of, I was very much into climate change and kind of like fear mongering around that trying to get people to go vegan and telling people that, well, in the beginning of the garden, God only gave Adam and Eve plants bearing seed and the fruit to eat and you didn't get any permission to eat meat until the Mm. flood and uh, there's a lot (laughs) of different Verses that I it, it was very much like I mean, let me just pick a bunch of random things and connect them with some string and say that that's uh <laughs> the Bible supports veganism. But that's again, it was my politics and my religion were very much influenced by the culture, by progressivism. And I was worshiping these different idols within progressivism. And I was not actually following the Bible, I wasn't actually following God. I was trying to make God and make the Bible bow down to my presuppositions and to my sensitivities and to my beliefs, which it's worth noting that because I think that experience helped me to, with where I'm at now, I know how easy it is to do that, how easy it is to take a worldview and to try to force something like the Bible into that worldview. And so I try to be very careful now as someone who tries to make the biblical case for libertarianism or anarchism to not do that, to not make the sort of like weak arguments that are based on like reinterpreting scripture to fit my Mm -hmm. worldview, because that's not how we should approach the Bible. And so that's something that I've come a long way on too.
0: I'm kind of curious about that because when you say that you know, you try to make the Bible, I forget how you described it, but like you realize that you were making the Bible fit your worldview, your presuppositions. And I'm like, well, don't we all do that? And not like, aren't we all guilty of it? But like, isn't that what we're doing when we approach the text in some capacity? Like if you're reformed, you're going to approach the text with a mindset of, well, I'm a Calvinist. I believe in these five things or whatever, more than five things or whatever it might be. Or for someone else who might be an open theist and they would approach the text in a certain way. Like we're all approaching the text from where we are. I mean, I think that's, for me, I look at that and say, well, that's one of the really key true insights from postmodernity or postmodernism is that we are all contextual in that we are looking at the text through the lens and we don't have any control over that. You and I grew up, we were born and grew up and were shaped by the world we live in. And I've had leftists tell me that my reading of scripture is more influenced or is implicitly influenced by a Lockean view of, say, property (laughs) rights was more specific of what he was saying. And I was like, well, okay, but yours is more, you know, implicitly influenced by a Marxist view, right? And so we all come at the text with those different things. So I would want to hear from you, and maybe we could discuss this a little bit as not necessarily a detour, because I think this is kind of important to understanding. How do you avoid, well, you can't avoid it, I don't think you can avoid letting those things happen, but you can be aware of it. And, yeah, i agree with And that. I think that there's a way to say, well, I will submit to the text and submit that I'm wrong upon further evidence or argument with other people or whatever. How do you approach things when you read the scripture that, that keeps you from, in this case, biblical anarchy, right? Like, you and I are pretty convinced that anarchism is the better way of reading the scripture, at least when it comes to Christian political engagement, right? And so at the same time, we've been wrong before, right? So how do you keep it from being like, well, I can't give up biblical anarchism just because the Bible says this other little thing that might mean that I should?
1: Right. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think so. to some extent, I agree with you that we all are going to bring some sort of presuppositions, multiple presuppositions. We're going to bring biases from our upbringing. We're going to bring biases from whatever theological perspective we cling to most, whether we explicitly identify with a camp or not. Like Even non-denominational Christians are maybe just unconsciously probably doing the same thing of reading the Bible through just whatever theological worldview that they are raised in or their church teaches in and et cetera. So I think that having that self-awareness, like you said, is important to catch those biases within yourself and to have conversations with people of the different perspectives, to read different perspectives. And I I try to not be too dogmatically Calvinist, although I won't say that I've never done that on certain topics, but <laughs> I try to do a pretty good job at drawing from all of Christendom. You know, like it's funny, there are people who actually on Twitter have mistaken me as Catholic. Because I've had a lot of Catholics on not mm. my not the Biblical Anarchy show, but on my old podcast, and I've been on other Catholic shows and had conversations with them, and I have a deep appreciation for Catholicism, both you know, like Catholic philosophy and different Catholic scholars and theologians throughout history, and sort of the worldview that they have and the traditions they have. I am not a Catholic, and I have some theological disagreements with them, but I think that. The pursuit of truth, whether we're talking about biblical truth overall, or if we're trying to dive at a different topic, I think it's important to approach it from multiple angles. And I don't think that the right way to read the Bible is to, and this is where I'm a little bit different. I'm not like a cookie cutter reformed Christian or Calvinist, because I, I don't really believe in, I guess, like systematic theology in the sense that like, you can just write out everything and systematize everything in the Bible. I think trying to understand the Bible, I mean, I think the Bible is a, in a non ironic way, it is a living document, right? Like I think there are multiple layers of interpretation to most, if not all of scripture. Cause a lot of things you read, like for example, in the old Testament, there are things there that are informational and expository that are giving you mm-hmm. like, here are the events of the Israelites wandering through the desert, But then it's like, okay, let's look deeper. Here are the spiritual or cultural implications of what was going on. Here are the foreshadowings to Christ. Here are the foreshadowings to different things in history. Here's how this relates to us today. There's so many different layers that you can draw out of the scriptures. And I don't think you ever hit the bottom of it. I don't think anyone ever hits the bottom of it. I think it's rather an analogy that I've heard William Lane Craig use, which I like, is that the truth which is something we're going after and i think the bible is god's word and it is inspired and it leads us to the truth but it's not like you know the bible isn't a book of facts that just teaches you everything you need to know about god in like this systematized like a science textbook and you read everything about cellular mm-hmm. division or how atoms react or how these molecules are formed it's like it's not like that the you learn the truth through these stories and through how these stories interact with the other stories and other narratives. And it's, yeah. so I think the two things to get back to your question, the two ways to best avoid, and no one's going to do it perfectly, but to best avoid bringing your worldview onto the text is to a expose yourself to as many different theological perspectives Mm -hmm. as possible and to not be too rigid with that. And B, I think it's to, this is my biggest rule is I do my best when I'm reading any text to try to broaden it out as much as possible. I don't like reading verses in isolation. I try to at the very least read something within the context of the chapter. And if I can, I like to include the chapter before and the chapter after I like to, for example, and we've talked about this before, but like a lot of the books of the new Testament didn't have chapter subdivisions when they were originally written. And so we have to try to read these things as if the verse we're reading is impacted by what comes before it and what comes after it, yeah. and
0: Romans thirteen was not Paul's thirteenth email to the Romans, right, exactly. So
1: <laughs> no one does it perfectly. I think it's sort of like we're all looking, you know it's like a diamond, it's multifaceted, and we have to that's the I, I somehow went off course. William Lane Craig's analogy is that the truth is like a diamond. That mm-hmm. you're trying to uncover, and it's like a, you're excavating this diamond, and you keep revealing more facets of it, and mm-hmm. so the picture starts to become more clear. But I don't think if Paul said that he sees dimly through
0: what was the expression, dimly through like glass or something, see through a glass darkly. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I mean,
0: we just have to do our best with what we have. No, you're not a dogmatic Calvinist if, if everything you just said you believe. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> and I don't mean I don't mean that. I don't mean that in any sort of distort Calvinist that I know, but what I mean by that is that you're very much open to other views in the sense that like, you know, you can be wrong and, and I don't mean not that all Calvinist. Okay. I, I'm going to get myself in trouble here by like <laughs> epitomizing Calvinist, the opposite of what, I, what you just said, but your submissiveness to the text is probably like the thing that stands out in what you were saying there.
1: And to be clear, it's like, I don't think there's anything wrong with systematic theology. If it's a, Anything can be good if it's used in the right way. Like, I think, for example, I don't have a problem with, like, let's say, certain rites or rituals that you find in Catholicism or in different liturgies. If they are used as a means to bring you closer to God and deepen your relationship and pursuit of following after him, that's good. If they become stale, empty rituals that you just repeat, Mm -hmm. that's not good. Yeah. Systematic yeah. theology, I think, can be the same way. If systematic theology helps you to understand complex issues within the text of scriptures, yeah, that can be good. But I think it's, you know, the minute we become too attached to the theology and not the scripture, the theology is based on, that, yeah. that it can become a little bit too rigid. And so that's where I say that I'm I'm reformed in a sense that like I fall more into that camp, but I'm not like confessionally reformed where it's like I hold to I don't I don't hold to like the Westminster Confession or the 1689 right, Confession right. or all these, you know, it's like to some extent it's like when you get to that level it's like you can sometimes I think be missing the forest for the trees a little bit.
0: Maybe. I mean, I I'm okay with I'm somewhat okay with people embracing that. I mean, we have we have and friends and, and colleagues that, that do that. Yeah. And, and I think it, it gives life to people and it grounds them in certain ways. And there's all kinds of reasons why people would do that. I think, you know, what I was saying earlier about our context and the environment that we're raised in, you know, we were all raised in all of us living today, right, We're raised in the Enlightenment. And systematic theology is very characteristic of Enlightenment thinking. You know, you divide things up and you systematize something. And you said that the Bible isn't there as sort of a science textbook. But I think a lot of people, and, and I think everybody, even like your hardcore inerrantists who are very like specifically an inerrantist and in like everything has to be like literal, like literalist, biblicist kind of inerrantist people yeah. would even say, well, no, it's not a textbook. Like we know it's not a textbook or a science book or whatever, but it seems like they treat it as there to be systematized because the truth is not something, and again, this goes to the way in which we conceptualize truth as, you know, people talk about the words absolute truth, which we don't need to go down that road today. But like the idea is that it, it is conforming to a certain way of truth. And so we have to systematize this, so that we understand that God is like this because all these other verses in the Bible give me my, what's the theology of God? as opposed to like Christology. I can't remember. We're like both like racking our brains here. <laughs> whatever, like, okay, so this is, you know, we read all these verses and we like systematize it into this one thing. It's like, okay, here's the theology that we have to believe about God's sovereignty or whatever, right? And so instead of reading the text and being like, okay, well, not all the questions are answered and we can't systematize this because not everything fits into these certain categories. You're looking it up. Yeah, I was
1: trying to look it up. I don't know. No, I I get what you're saying. I think if systematic theology leads you to study scripture more, that's good. I've just also seen where it can lead people to like, oh, well, we believe this because this is what our theology teaches or this is what, like, for example, some Calvinists are dogmatic about tulip. I am not dogmatic about tulip. I think tulip's useful. I don't, like, shy away from it, but it's not like I'm going to die on that hill as if, because, like, it's not I think tulip is grounded in my understanding of what Scripture says, but I wouldn't go as far as to say as the Scripture explicitly teaches tulip. You know, right. I think yeah. I think systematic theology can be good for like talking to people about complex ideas that come from a deep reading of multiple sections of yeah. different Scripture. So it's not that it's, it's not that I'm against it. I guess it's just I'm, and this is where like I think part of why I fell on with the left too is just that. Psychologically, just the way my brain's oriented is that I'm very hesitant to over systematize things. I don't mm. like putting things too rigidly or boxing things in too much. So now I think that that can go too far because I mean, and sure. I used to go too far with that. I was like, well, it's so bad to systematize things that there is no correct theology. And in fact, the Bible itself is too systematized and is inaccurate. And there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because one thing that I would say I still believe in is that we are obviously infallible. And so our interpretations of scripture can be infallible. You know, I don't think that the scriptures are wrong or not from God anymore like I used to. Yeah, sorry. I don't think the scriptures are fallible like I I used to believe in. But I do want to still maintain that humility when I approach scripture to always be learning and growing and not feel like, oh, I've had a point where I know it all. I'm not saying reformed people all do that, but that's a tendency I've noticed some reformed people to do.
0: Yeah, or it's the air they give off. I mean, that's sometimes just more of a matter of personality. And it's not even just reformed people. It's Yeah, no, it's totally, it's probably a personality thing. And with the systematic thing, we could wrap that part of the conversation up. I remember distinctly a phase where I really was not in favor of systematic theology. Like I had learned it a lot and I had started really not liking it. And it was Tim Keller who kind of made me be like, oh, okay, I could see the benefit. And he was kind of describing, he was basically saying that you can read the Lord of the Rings trilogy and really, really like it. But sometimes you just need a book to tell you who the characters are and how they relate. And so there's books about that are sort of like dictionaries that tell you that these are this people, this is where they live. This was the time period of Middle Earth that they lived in. Here's the books that they show up in and whatever. And so I'm sure Tim Keller put it way more eloquently than I just tried to describe. But that made me realize that there are two ways of understand. like it can be a tool to help us understand how to rightly divide the word of truth. Right. And so to quote the old King James version of that, but in any case, let's shift this because you were in this mode of being sort of a leftist red letter Christian. And, you know, we've dove in there on one particular topic. What were some things that experiences or maybe some ideas that changed your worldview to where you are now? I mean, I wanted to ask you, and we don't have to go into it, but like, how quickly was that transition to be a leftist? But then how quickly was the transition coming out of that? Because my journey, for me, took quite a bit of time. And it seemed like for you, it was a little bit faster.
1: Yes. So I think I would have identified as being on the left from probably the time I was uh, probably like 15 or 16, sometime in there. And... It it was that was that's young. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. By the time, like, I think at the end of my junior year is when I like really started to like staunchly identify as very left leaning. And then now, I think after high school, I I maybe dropped out of caring about politics as much because I entered the workforce. I started. I, I was dating my wife, and maybe wasn't as politically involved as I was when I was in high school. I was in speech and debate, so I was very much informed by my like very left-leaning teachers and coaches and stuff. And then by the time Bernie Sanders came around, I got really caught up in him because, I mean, just everything he said to me made sense. He was like, we got to get corruption out of politics. We got to address this massive inequality. We got to address healthcare. Just, again, all the things that to me seemed to make sense. And part of what, I guess, like a delusion or an inaccuracy that I was operating under was this idea that there was enough for everybody, and there's always enough for everybody, and it really is just as simple as redistributing everything so that everyone has enough, and people that have way too much will still have plenty, and society yeah, will be more math, fair. Right? We just yeah, take right. away some
0: <laughs> of their stuff, and like, look at the math.
1: Right? Exactly. And what challenged my presuppositions there was just, I mean encountering actual solid critiques of that false economic model that I had sort of preconceived in my head. And I remember maybe post-2016, after that election, I started to fall a little bit out of my leftist camps, not so much because I changed my economic views or my political views, but just culturally, the left post-Trump started to go like really... Double triple down on the wokeism and stuff, and even though I wasn't at a place theologically that I am at now, it still went too far for me at that point. Like I think God kind of like had a, you know, enough root in my heart. There was enough truth mm. root in my heart that just like I had an aversion to going that far. Like, listen, I have some issues with my, you know, <laughs> conservative family and their beliefs and stuff, but they're not all like racist, bigoted monsters. You know what I mean? Like it just, it started to not make sense to me. And I also started to kind of realize like, you know what? I don't really like Donald Trump at all, but the news is just clearly biased to where Trump could come out tomorrow and say Medicaid for all and the Democrats would be against it. Like it just, (laughs) so it just kind of came clear to me that, and plus kind of watching what happened with Bernie Sanders, how like the democrats pretty clearly rigged that race against him to give it to hillary clinton and so it, it just i became jaded on the democratic party and then the democratic party people i knew just became so rabidly woke and progressive yeah it was just all about trump derangement syndrome and i just didn't want any part of it so i became more interested in hearing different views and I, because i had that speech and debate background I always in speech and debate you're taught to debate both sides of an argument. When you show up to a debate tournament, you know the topic ahead of time, but you have to have a pro and a con defense prepared. And each round, you don't know until you get into the round and they flip a coin if you're going to take mm. the pro or the negative side of whatever resolution there is. So you have to be able to argue both sides. So and I, I have a always a really
0: great idea for a lightning round for you after this. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>
1: Well, I think I've demonstrated that in our group chat before. Cause I think yeah. I think Carrie asked once, like, how do leftists believe that capitalism leads to like bigotry or something like that? And I was like, oh, that's easy. And I just like
0: No, I remember <laughs> that distinctly because <laughs> yeah. it was it was very much like you had it down, man. <laughs> so it was like Chat GPT, but it's just, you know, Jacob. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> how does a leftist think about this? Oh, there's Jacob going away, just like Cheap. Ch- anyway, sorry, I'll let you keep going.
1: <laughs> I was very interested in hearing different perspectives and stuff. So I started listening to, I went down like the podcast rabbit hole, so to speak. And I remember listening to a debate on healthcare between Ben Shapiro and Cenk Uger. And though I wouldn't call Ben Shapiro a libertarian on many things, he's decent Nor on economics. He. he made some points about healthcare and just the economic presuppositions behind like universal single-payer healthcare that made me at least kind of like think like, okay, maybe there's something I'm not considering here. So I started trying to find more critiques against universal healthcare and all that. And then for some reason, I stumbled across Dave Smith and Tom Woods, and they were doing a podcast where they were dunking on Ben Shapiro for some different reason, because I think Ben <laughs> Shapiro was criticizing Ron Paul over something. Oh, uh, Okay. But then I found a debate between Dave Smith and Sam Cedar, And then I heard Dave Smith bring up the Federal Reserve. And I was like, what? why are they talking about the Federal Reserve so much? And I, I remember hearing about the Federal Reserve when I had looked into Ron Paul years back, but I'd never really done a deep dive into that. Then I found four or five episodes of Tom Woods just talking about the Federal Reserve. And that is sort of when it all kind of came crashing down for me on the economic front. Because I started to realize like, oh... <laughs> Everything that I want the government to do is backed by this insane printing of money. And it's unsustainable. And it's caused all the problems that I see not only with inequality, but like it caused the housing crash. Yeah. When Bernie Sanders goes, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor. It's like, well, what's what's at the bottom of that? It's the Federal Reserve. And I realized, like, oh. Basically, to sum it up, I was like, oh, scarcity is a thing, and printing money doesn't eliminate scarcity. (laughs) 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 And so that's basically what changed my political beliefs. And I think then just once I got away from that, I was just at a point in my life where I was just ready to challenge other ideas, too. And so I started, because I fell into the Rothbardian camp, so to speak, I met a lot of fellow Christian libertarians who were very different than me theologically. And so that began to broaden my my theological
0: perspectives as well. And and at the time you were, you're saying at the time you were leftist and they were different from you as in like they're similar to you where you are now? Yeah, they're similar to, yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: I would say like this journey started around 2016 and then 2018 is, it was a slow transition from 2016 to 2018 Okay, to where I switched from being pretty far left to being, Libertarian leaning. And then I had a whole experience that red pilled me on anarchy, but I don't know if we want to get into that or not. But
0: mm. well, maybe that can be an episode for your podcast. People can go, it will be a little tease, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Hi, this, this is, is Gregory Bouse. And this is Carrie Baldwin. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as the Reformed Libertarians podcast, hosted by me and Carrie. We educate and inspire listeners to embrace and promote libertarianism as grounded in the Reformed faith. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to offering a variety of content you love, like what you're hearing in this very episode. So now back to the show, and then be sure to check out reformedlibertarians.com. I'm kind of curious, when you started learning about the Federal Reserve, did you have any impulse to look into the pros of the Federal Reserve, given your debate tactic preparation.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I I remember trying to look up, so I I remember like fact-checking everything that they were saying about how the Federal Reserve operates and how how the money gets distributed Mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah, And I I had a pretty decent understanding of like Keynesian theory of economics. And I was just like, well, yeah, you'll lower the interest rates to increase the spending during the recession, so you get out of the recession quicker. Like that's kind of the basic idea. You spend as if that's just a de facto good without right, question. Right. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, what's and I was like, what's wrong with that? Like you spend the right, money okay. and then you bring the and then I think what clicked with me was I realized and no one really, except us libertarians, like keeps that heavy a tab on the Federal Reserve. But once I started looking into it, I was like, oh, the problem is that Keynesian Economics does kind of In theory, state what some point the interest rates do have to rise. Now, like, wait, we haven't really risen our interest rates like Mm. ever. (laughs)
0: Yeah, right. Like,
1: we we are just now here in 2023 experiencing the rise of the interest rates, and so basically, I think what it was hard for me to come up with arguments against it because I kind of the way I started to understand it was, oh, Bernie Sanders wants to get money out of politics, but that's just like fundamentally impossible because this machine is sort of like that is literally the lifeblood of politics.
0: Mm.
1: you know what I mean Especially like corrupt
0: or at the, at the very least corrupt politics
1: right, exactly. so it's like if you want to get money out of politics, you have to eliminate the system where you can have this just unlimited spending, and the wars and these programs and stuff can just be funded into infinity with no. Well, with no Real check, check put against and them. no
0: permission from the people.
1: Right. It's like there's no point in objecting to taxes and what, because like, it's like, oh, we got a tax cut. Cool. That just means they're printing more money and you're getting taxed indirectly hmm. by the devaluing of your dollar. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, yeah. There is no check. There's no actual social cost. So I think it really was just a case of, encountering better ideas. And I think the real problem with people on the left is just that this is going to sound like, like I'm sort of like talking down at them, but I think the problem with a lot of people on the left is that you kind of are brought up to believe that they have this sort of false sense of intellectual superiority and you don't have the curiosity to go and have your ideas countered by other counter perspectives, right? And if you do, the people you seek out the most are the people that seem like your ideological opposite. You go and talk to Republicans. But Republicans are really just progressives, like, like Michael Malice says, driving the speed limit, right? Like, very rarely you're going to find a Republican who's going to talk about the Federal Reserve or talk about a need to actually go back to free market economics. They're really just going to be like, hey, you guys are taxing at this rate and we should drop it to this rate. You guys are spending this many trillion dollars and we need to spend this many trillion dollars. It's like, they're not different. (laughs) And it's like, there's no good argument to a progressive to become a Republican because it's just like, what do Republicans really do or say against progressivism other than just, let's do it a little bit less?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I (laughs) hear you. You know, it's interesting. You're talking about the Federal Reserve and how that really drew you. And it was in a way part of... In my journey, it was kind of part of how I realized that the left can't have what it wants. Even if it's somehow politically feasible, it can't have what it wants because there are economic laws and scarcity and the, you know, the Fed is really a big deal and all that. Why is it though that millennials, Gen Z, whatever generation you I are? I don't know if we're quite the same generation. I don't know. Like, what is it though that? draws them to this whole woke movement or basically leftism progressivism like i've often wondered why the left hasn't latched on to the federal reserve issue like and anytime i try to talk to my progressive leftist christian friends they're just kind of like well we need a stable economy or well we need you know liquidity like well what if the federal reserve didn't print all this money in 2008 2009 then we would have really had it would have been worse or whatever like they come up with these like sort of excuses but they don't really seem to understand that that it's an underlying cause. But that aside, what is the mindset of somebody who is attracted to this woke stuff or progressivism?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's the myth or the lie that not only does central planning work for some things, but that it can just work for everything. And it's this idea that like money is just a social construct. It's just numbers on the computer they don't have a real connection, real like necessity and understanding of like from the ground up how economies work. Like that it is, it stems from humans acting and humans upon a calculation of, I will give you X for Y because this brings me value and you're going to do it because it brings you value. And the source of value comes from those subjective judgments that people make in those interactions within the market to them, value is just arbitrary numbers that we can... It's like, oh, you just... The cost of the banana is this much because the grocery store says so. Like, the cost of labor is this (laughs) much. This is why they just want to raise minimum wage because they're just like, these are just arbitrary numbers on the screen. And there's no reason why we can't raise the minimum wage from $12 an hour to $20 an hour, right? Like, it's just it's just people who are being cheapskates and don't want to spend more money out of their big... Yeah, the
0: capitalist class doesn't right. want to give up their income. Right, and their if exploitation you tr- money.
1: And if you try to come at them with like trying to actually reach them with the message of scarcity and being like no, like <laughs> this just doesn't work. <laughs> like <laughs> reach them can't... with
0: the message of scarcity. That's a great headline for this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it really is like I think at the bottom of progressivism is a rejection of hierarchy and scarcity. It's like the scarcity and hierarchy either do not exist or they exist only because they are imposed upon people by the ruling elites. That is is sort of the... Yeah, it's all social constructionism. And just, if we just pass a law that says everybody is going to get X, Y, and Z, everybody will get X, Y, and Z. And the reason why I think they're not open to like, if you try to reach them... Like I think the reason I was open to the arguments of the Federal Reserve because I got jaded against the left because mm-hmm. of my experiences with them. So, you know, I'd heard people talk about the Federal Reserve before a little bit, but I just always fell back to, well, no, we have to spend, you know, again, like there are some things that like maybe some of the more educated leftists will know, like they'll know a little bit of Keynesian economics, like I said before, and just be like, oh, well, they view the economy in this like it's this weird. Like magical chemistry concoction, right? And it's like, it's mysterious and we can't completely understand it. And things just happen randomly. And, but if we just dump money into it, that'll produce a better outcome. And when you tell them, okay, but the money that you're dumping into it is being artificially created and it inflates the money supply, that's not going to reach them because they don't have that basic understanding of like where prices come from. And they just think prices
0: are set arbitrarily. Yeah, prices come from the capitalist class who want to exploit them. That's like literally right. the answer. It's almost right. as like there's like, we should play like leftist bingo one night uh, <laughs> in one of our like live streams and be like, it's price gouging, uh, Doug. It's just, yeah, it's price gouging <laughs> or, um, or like, oh, it's white, it's a white privilege. This <laughs> is like leftist bingo card. And it connects to
1: wokeism because when you try talking to them about, some of these things you will a lot of what you see on the left that it gets taught. And I didn't, I never really went, I didn't dive into the deep end of this, but I swam in the shallow pool enough that I can understand where they're coming from. (laughs) That when they say that this stuff, it's white supremacy, right? So let's think back to that police shooting that happened the other week where it was a black, not police shooting. It was a police killing. And it was a group of policemen who were black and they killed a black man the left still said that was white supremacy. And you just go like, okay, but where's the white supremacy at? And they say, it comes from the system. Is that the
0: headline? I saw a headline that said it was still driven by racism. I didn't hear white supremacy. It was an oh, article no, by Van Jones. I mean, I couldn't give you the name, but I
1: know 100% yeah. for fact. I heard people saying it is it is a outgrowth of white supremacy. that The police itself are, a, are an outgrowth of white supremacy. And the reason why they can make that argument is that It all comes down, like, society is not at its bottom. It's weird when the left goes on about how the right is anti-science, and it's just Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, science sort of deals in facts and numbers, but to them, then when they deal with society, it's like, well, it's not about facts. It's about narrative. Mm. It's about groups that are engaged in different power struggles. And the system of the police is ultimately the enforcement wing of a predominantly white culture that has been historically white, that was created by white men for white people and that they initially enslaved black people when they founded this country. And so therefore, everything that stems from that is just the outgrowth of a system that is rooted in white supremacy. And to them, that's more compelling than trying to come and talk to them about how keeping the interest rates artificially low or at zero for years and years and years has been the driving force behind the inequality they care about. Because like even if they were going to entertain that idea... Don't they
0: realize that the Federal Reserve is run by white men?
1: Well, some of them do. I will say there are some leftists who do sometimes get a little bit red-pilled on the Federal Reserve. I actually... Oh, man. Surprisingly... I heard Ben Shapiro and Anna Kasperian do a conversation on Ben's podcast the other day. And at the last five minutes, they both started talking about the Federal Reserve and how, and I forget exactly what they're talking about, but how it connected to the problem that they were both looking at. I think it was about, oh, the Federal Reserve is enabling all these rich corporations to buy up all this housing in all these different areas and stuff Mm, and how that's a big problem. And so sometimes the Federal Reserve will, like there are some, more intelligent leftists, who so I think will acknowledge the Federal Reserve is a bit of a problem, but it's like they'll acknowledge it as a problem in one particular area, and they mm, won't go okay. down to like, like, no, you're looking at the they tip of the, the iceberg systemic part. Yeah, <laughs> ironically, right, <laughs> right, and it's just yeah, oh. and it, yeah, and it's ultimately it's also again I think it does the left is driven by the belief that not only is everything a power struggle, but that if they wield power, that they can reform the system and that they can, if we just had a system that was based on everything, the left values, then society would follow suit. Again, they're like, like we said before They're I I think it's their anti hierarchy and they're and they fundamentally do not. The only thing that is scarce in their mind is like, the amount of time we have left because of global warming. <laughs> like that's the only, the only time scarcity comes up is with fossil fuels. I guess it's like the only thing that we're ever going to run out of is fossil fuels. And we're going to run out of, I guess like clean water and stuff like that. It's the only time that scarcity comes up, oh, but, man. But, but the, the money that's printers, true. they'll never stop.
0: <laughs> money printer go burr climate. Go. Wow. It's hot in here. <laughs> Oh, well, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap this up?
1: Well, I would just encourage people because I get a lot of people in our camp's frustration with dealing with the left because it's like, once I became a libertarian, I went hard at like all my former left-leaning friends and relatives. My my sister's a huge lefty. I think I've cage talked about stage, that huh? before. Yeah, and I was a yeah, huge cage-stage libertarian and so frustrated that... And then like when like the Black Lives Matter thing happened and I was like trying to be like, yes, we should be against police brutality. And yes, we should defund the police. But let's go deeper than that. Let's disconnect it from wokeism and white supremacy. And let's connect it to the state is this entity that oppresses all people. And if you actually, you know, and looking at the actual reasons for inequality, looking at the actual reasons, financial Incentives that are backing the military industrial complex instead of you know, you try to get them to look at these things and they don't I think the only thing I want to leave people with is that Going head-on at the left with facts. It's just ninety nine point nine percent of the time never going to work I would compare this a little bit to like the matrix movie, which I think is just a great story to kind of use as a reference in libertarian in the libertarian world but you have to sort of like if, um, try to remember their names. Like if Morpheus and the people had gone to Neo in that movie, like just randomly on the street and handed him the red pill and blue pill and tried to tell him, you're living in a simulation and everything is, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like he's going to be like, what? And think you're crazy. Like you have to plant seeds and have to show, you have to show people over time the glitches in the matrix. Yeah. And they have to at some point hit a point in their journey where, They know the system is flawed and they know something's wrong. They just don't know it yet. And that's when you have to engage them. But I think too many people focus at throwing all the factual arguments at them first instead of trying to just help show them the glitches in the matrix to get them to that point where they're ready. It's different. Like I think when you're engaging with the right, it's different. It's like they're not as compelled by like arguments about systematic oppression and whatnot. They're more you might be able to reach them with just like, if you're going to outright the right, you just show them how you're not really conservative. You're up progressive. <laughs> like
0: yeah, driving like, that I, moment, I think yeah. can be a
1: bit more effective with the left. I think we have to take a different tact and listen, I, I know plenty of people. It's not just me. There are other people from the left who have had similar journeys to me. And I think we need to not to quote the Bible here a little bit. Like, there is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no master, you know, no, no male, no female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So let's be careful to not I mean, I'm not saying we should be anti like obviously categories of people exist. But let's not dehumanize people on the left or give up on them as a wholesale, because I think there's a lot of people on the left who can be reached, and if you put that investment and time into doing it we're growing the number of people who oppose the empire who oppose the the great evil and of the state and of authoritarianism and that's what we should be focused on so i just want to encourage people in that
0: excellent well i hope everybody hears more from jacob on his biblical anarchy podcast thank you jacob for joining me here to talk about your journey and how we can fight the state yeah thanks for having me doug